Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Each week, I talk to some of the leading business brains, coaches and HR executives, but there are probably just as many wildly creative leaders who spend their days in music, theatre, publishing, studios. One of those people is today's guest, Alex Nagavi, one of the original creative brains on the development of Future Women. Based in LA, in 2015, Alex was named one of the 20 creative designers you need to know. She is the executive creative director and partner of Joseph Mark, where she helps shape startup brands. In her spare time, she curates affordable art and produces 3D printing sculptures that she designs in virtual reality. I wanted to know, do creative people lead differently? And if so, how and what do I need to think about when I work for someone like Alex? Alex Nagavi, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Alex, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, Helen. Now, look, I have done my best to try and describe exactly how your brain works. But perhaps now you could tell the audience what you do and how you work. Yeah, for sure. So as you mentioned, I am the executive creative director at Joseph Mark, which is a global venture studio. And uh, yeah, my my role really isn't like a typical creative director where it is, you know, all about the creative vision of things. I definitely do that across branding and uh, digital products. But I also run a business unit. I'm kind of responsible for growing the business over here in the US. I do recruitment. I do business development. I do, you know, you name it, I probably do it. So I'm across a lot of things. But I would also say if I kind of zoomed out from my day-to-day work, if I were to think of a a cute little Venn diagram of sorts, uh, I, I would sit at the middle of design, technology, venturing and leadership. And design is very much part of my DNA. If I wasn't designing or if I wasn't being creative, I I would lose uh, my sense of personal identity for sure. And technology, you mentioned it. I mean, I'm a massive technophile. I literally sculpt these little sculptures in VR and then I print them on my 3D printer. I'm just like a massive nerd in that respect. And then on the venturing side, just anything got to do with business. I grew up in my dad's business brokerage. So I learned at a very young age about buying and selling businesses. And I was exposed to leadership and business at a very young age. I was a receptionist answering phones at a ridiculously young age. And it was probably very inappropriate and <laughs> possibly very much at slave wages. <laughs> and I I just, I love coming up with investable propositions for early stage ventures because I just love creating things and thinking strategically. But then I think the fourth thing in that Venn diagram is the leadership aspect. And I think that's almost 
equal to the design side in terms of how much that is intrinsically tied to who I am. Before we get too deep into the leadership stuff and the business stuff, which I I really want to do, I want the audience to come to understand a little bit about how you and I met, uh, and that was in the really early days of Future Women, and how you saw the brand in those early days, because the branding that you see today is the branding that Alex came up with. And it's five, nearly five years, Alex. So, I know. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell me how you came to be on the, on the project and how you saw us at that point in time, given that you were living in LA. I'm actually kind of flattered that you still have the brand and a lot of the roots are still there. And it was, it's really nice to see. Yeah, when I heard about this podcast and I was going to be on it, I was just thinking really fondly about the times when, uh, you know, we started this project with you and we got to hear like from your mouth. And it was just this great vision for what you saw as a really like female empowerment platform and club and just this really exciting new way to approach I think at the time, what seemed like very dated and traditional ways of doing like women's networking and things like that, that just felt very done. And so you were bringing a really fresh perspective to that. And uh, we gravitated towards it. We were like leaping at the chance because you were working, I think, at the time with the all-female team on the JM side. And so I was creatively directing it. And I remember when we essentially got the brief, uh, we were helping, you know, essentially shape it with you, but it was very clear from your mind in terms of needing to strike a balance between modern and classic, but also edgy and sophisticated. And I think that it, that can be like a really hard thing to do well. And it's really just lovely to see that a lot of the brand tenants that we came up with way back then, because I think that was in 2017 or something, yeah. are still alive and well today, which is amazing. And yeah, I uh, I honestly do think that the way that we came up with that brand and the embodiment of all the values and the personality traits, and this is not blowing wind, honestly, Helen, it really was the embodiment of you because um, so often when we are creating brands for early stage ventures or projects or whatever they are, it really is so much of the personality of, that, of the founder as well. And so there was such a... Um, just a poise to everything that we were doing. And it just felt very like cool, but collected. And it was like sophisticated. And and I think a lot of that energy was because of you. Thank you. I have to say that the um, the brand has the energy of a whole bunch of other people today. Uh, but it certainly struck me at the time how much of a leader you were in your field and how much clarity you had, both in terms of how brands come together and in terms of the creative components of it. And those two things are pretty rare. Do you think creative thinkers lead differently? I think it's not to say that if you're creative, suddenly that makes you a a good leader. I think it's the same for everyone. Some people I personally think are just more naturally in tuned with being a leader than other people. And I don't think that really has anything to do with being creative or not. I mean, I've worked with plenty of amazing creatives and they really need to stay as individual contributors because that that leadership, you know, bone or whatever you want to call it is just not innately within them. But I do think that if you were to generalize, uh, creatives probably do sit on a slightly more empathetic end of the spectrum. And so when it comes to that style of leadership and being like maybe a little bit more relatable or empathetic or open, 
Yeah, potentially. That probably makes sense. And whenever I'm working with other creative teams, you get the sense of camaraderie and there's a real sometimes like silliness in the way that we approach things. But I wouldn't say that's like a a rule for all because some people are just much better at leading than others. And it doesn't really, you know, matter if you're creative or not. At what point did you go from the person who did the heavy lifting in the brand design work to being involved in the business side of your organisation uh, and having staff? It probably started to shift when I was becoming a creative director. So going from sort of a brand lead or, a, sorry, a design lead and then to a creative director, you then just naturally start to take on more responsibilities that are slightly outside of that sort of creative lane. So things like recruitment, things like doing estimates and some stuff on the operations side. But I would say the entire time from starting out as an intern at this company and making my way as partner, I've always held culture really close to my heart. And I feel like when you can be someone that is sparking that culture. It's, it is something that is somewhat of a, an, an additional skill to what you're doing, and it almost takes on a responsibility of its own. So I would say that is something that I've kind of had throughout. But as I went from creative director then to executive creative director, I then started to take on more operational roles, of course, because I was heading up the US team. We had our own team over here. I was responsible for them as well as the global design team. So it really was the weight of that was starting to get pretty heavy. Uh, Yeah, I think that stretched me in a really, in a good way, uh, because I love to be challenged. And I, I don't know if you mentioned this, but I have been at the company for a long time. It's about 15 years. And there's a reason I stay here. And it's because I'm constantly being challenged. I'm always allowed opportunities to grow. We work on the most diverse work. And we also get to be invested in what we're creating. So there is a kind of an upside to us staying committed here and and wanting to see things through. It sounds like I know the answer to this already, but do you think you've ever been disadvantaged because people think, oh, well, Alex needs space and time to percolate her crazily creative ideas. So we'll just let her sit over there being amazing uh, and we'll go and do all the operational work Has that ever happened to you or because you're in a creative environment and everyone's pretty creative, you've had opportunities to explore other aspects of your skill set? Yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, I'm very fortunate that being in a a design company essentially means that everyone really, you know, respects the art form. Uh, But I'm also someone that just loves to be involved in like every aspect of a business and I can't help it. And and I think because of my broad skill set across leadership and venturing and design and tech and all of that, I, I bring a lot of value in a lot of the different areas that I work within. So I think a lot of people um, typically know that I'm not just limited into one column and I, and I don't think anyone would necessarily ever put me in a box. Though I think it's probably to my detriment that I'm across so many things. But I, I, I luckily, because of the experience I've had working in a creative environment, being a designer has never been like looked down on. So I feel very grateful for having that experience. Okay, so I am working for you. Um, what things should I consider 
when my boss is a creative genius in the team and say I'm from finance, so I have no creative ability at all. What are the things I should think about in terms of how I communicate with someone who's highly creative? I mean, I would hope that it's not necessarily majorly different from talking to any other, you know, leader or boss, but I think you could probably show, I guess, a little bit more curiosity around maybe the design or creative side to kind of show that you actually respect, you know, the the design. I think oftentimes people that aren't creative, it's perfectly fine. We're not wanting everyone to be creative. But when there's kind of almost like a lack of value or respect for, you know, what what they do or what they bring to the table, you know, that can cause friction. But I would say uh, if you're at least admitting the fact that you're terrible at design, but you know that, you know, this takes hours or whatever it might be, that can be a good way to kind of bridge that gap a little bit. But I would say, like, overall, uh, hopefully people aren't uh, being treated differently because they're creative. What sort of leadership challenges have you experienced in your career? Oh, my God, where do I begin? (laughs) Um, You know what, the one that kind of sticks out in my mind over the last couple of years, obviously, we all went through COVID and um, being in LA, being an Australian, leading a predominantly American team and going through the early stages of COVID where everyone was working remotely, everyone was very scared, didn't know what was going to happen with the company, in the world, with their families. And then on top of that, in LA specifically, or sorry, the US specifically, We had the Black Lives Matter movement. We also had the election. And that was honestly like one of the toughest times (laughs) I've ever had as a leader because it basically means that you're needing to stay strong for your team. And it can be really hard because uh, everyone else is feeling the pressure and you want to give them the grace and the patience and the time to heal and do what they need to do. But... What I learned as well during that time was not only that, but how do I represent a team in a country that I'm not necessarily, you know, from? And uh, we were at that time, I guess, kind of looking to the founders of the company to really make a statement about where the world was politically and socially and all of that. And so if I could do that all over again, I would speak up and I would be the voice of my team over here and of the team globally, because when the Black Lives Matter movement happened, it was uh, really spawned from the US, even though it's very much a universal issue. It was something that I feel like I needed to take more of a a voice in. And so that was actually a really uh, tough time, but a great learning experience. And I always say to my team, Whenever you reflect and look back or, you know, anytime you're actually in the thick of something and it sucks, it's usually those times where you're growing the most. So, yeah, I would say that's probably something that is at the most most recent memory. So your reflection on your leadership at the time was that you didn't take a stronger leadership position on a social issue or with your Australian um, management team? Yeah. Or both? Um, probably waiting for the people in Australia to be the voice and the representatives of this issue when it was maybe, it was really more of a local issue that was really being like fueled. even though I will say it was very much a universal issue and everyone was, it was very global, but it um, very much was led out of the US. And I really, 
I really wish I handled that differently and, and I felt I wish I had more courage to take the lead at the time. But that really is a learning for someone that is not intrinsically tied to that culture. I, you know, I, I've only been in the US for five years at that time or four years at that time. And it was, you know, an all-American crew. So that, yeah, that was... Um, did you tricky. did you have um, challenges with your own staff? Like um, the people of colour on your staff were experiencing, and I, I remember that period of time on my own team, which uh, they interpreted it from a variety of different perspectives. It was deeply emotional. People really took different components of that movement on board. Mm-hmm. Were you having discussions with your team? And do you have a diverse team? Yeah, at the time, it probably wasn't quite as diverse as it is now, which, you know, it's a good thing. Um, But at the time, yes, we were having a lot of discourse. And I'm very proud to say that we have a really open team and a really open culture. And so we put a commitments plan together and we did all of this stuff. But it was me working with my team, which I don't think is a bad thing, but there was an element of me kind of waiting for our founders or, you know, people that were slightly detached from this to say something. And in hindsight, I 100% could have been that person that said something because I have been in the company for so long. I'm a partner. And so I I should have stepped up. Really interesting discussion. And uh, I can certainly see how it could happen that a white woman from Brisbane might not necessarily have felt that she could lead through a very traumatic period of time in history, actually. So, um, fascinating reflection. How did you come to be partner? How did that come about? Did you ask? Did you walk in and go, I've been in this company for (laughs) 10 years, I demand to be made partner? (laughs) Uh, No, that's so funny. I mean, honestly, I have built such a great relationship with the founders. And um, I think just from even early days, like when I was still creative director there, we were talking about partnership. You know, they weren't trying to like dangle in front of me, but it was very much from a sign of respect that they see me as, you know, their own. And I had just been working with them for so long. We had done so many trips together. Like we really... And I don't like to ever call a company a family, but with the with like Ben and Jess, they really do feel like my family. I've been with them for 15 years. We're like, you know, basically attached to the hip at this stage. And it's uh, it just felt very organic. And um, I know this is definitely not the case for a lot of people in terms of the trajectory of their careers, but mine was quite organic. And it really was, I think I've just always found that if I focus on the work and working hard and just creating great work, then a lot of other things kind of follow quite naturally. And I know that's not the case for everyone. But um, yeah, I I kind of went from, as I said, that intern to junior to mid to senior to lead to creative director to executive creative director, very normally. Like it was just, um, you know, every time I would kind of step up, I would then challenge myself to grow even more and maybe take on more responsibilities. And I felt like I could do it and I had the capacity, I had the brain space, I had the, you know, creative vision. And so when it came to becoming partner, that seemed kind of natural too, because I was still, I was executive creative director going to the US, setting up the team, and that was for a few years. And then so it felt kind of like, well, it, I mean, it feels like I've been partner for a long time, but now it's time to make it official. And I didn't, 
ask for it. Titles actually don't really bother me that much. What I do respect is respect itself. So I give people a lot of respect, people that I work with, because I really appreciate them genuinely. And I know that in return, they will respect me. And that's really what I care about the most. But deep down, I knew I probably, I was a partner this whole time and I knew they would treat me like a partner. Um, But it was made official, yeah, a couple of years ago. And that was really nice. Let's talk about the leadership qualities of Ben and Jess then, since you've mentioned them a few times. And it's probably valuable for you to describe what makes them exceptional as colleagues and as as leaders. Yeah. And what's interesting too, so for those that don't know, Ben and Jess are, um, you know, the owners of the company. They're also married, have two beautiful children. But yeah, working with them and kind of going through my my career with them, it was really interesting to see the dynamic play out. They were almost like kind of opposites to each other, but that's what made it work. Uh, Ben is definitely more of your visionary thinker, big picture, kind of blue sky, um, just very like a cuddly bear, very, very lovely. And um, Jess is too, but she also brings that pragmatic side, so that which is really important. So it's almost like Ben kind of goes into the sky and Jess like allows him to be a bit more grounded. And, you know, I think it's like a really good balance that it's allowed the company to not only stay kind of um, competitive, but also have the commercial nows to understand how we should be moving forward in a smart way. So I think it's a nice balance. And and Jess is currently on parental leave and we've got someone else that essentially plays that role. So it's always great to have someone almost like a, a really good combination of roles where some people, you know, that their skill set is going to be inspiring people and then other people's skill set is how do we make this work like realistically, actually, like how, how is this going to fund itself? And so having a combination of the two, because it's very hard to get that in one person. I think that is, you know, a bit of a merit to the company. I have to ask though, because I would imagine in many circumstances, employees would be wary about walking into a organization where the founders are married and are such dominant personalities. I mean, why, how have they managed to navigate that in itself? I mean, you would have to ask them. <laughs> well, <laughs> it obviously doesn't upset you or anyone in your team. So they, they you know, like it's it's oh, a testament I mean, to them, right? Extraordinary. Well, look, look, don't get me wrong. And they'll probably <laughs> the days. But like in, these, in, the, in the early days, and they, they won't deny this, but yeah. like, oh my gosh, like sometimes it was very awkward being in a room with them because they were still figuring out how they would balance the relationship at work and, you know, after work. And so um, (laughs) I definitely have witnessed my fair share of awkward moments between the two of them. But I think that they've also had like interchanges between who is CEO of the company too, which I think has been really interesting. And those were different periods of JM and, and maybe a little bit, you know, how we operated. But I think overall, uh, they've learned a lot over the years in terms of who they are as individuals and how they can work best by focusing on their strengths and respecting their strengths. Like I always love 
to encourage people to come to the table with the thing that makes them unique. And really, I want them to shine in that area. And I know that I'm not going to shine in every area, but let me shine in this area and I'll do the same for all of you. And if you can do that, then you have a really harmonious team and you have a, a great synergy between everyone knowing what they bring to the table and not resenting the fact that they can't do the other things, knowing that other people have a down path. Alex, I think you shine at most things you do, but I am interested to know when you're hiring, okay? So uh, you're hiring, what do you look for? What sort of questions do you ask? So, I mean, look, aside from the obvious capabilities and kind of culture questions that you typically would want to ask, I think what I'm often just generally looking for that sets someone apart and it's hard to kind of quantify or like what it is exactly, but I think it's a spark. It's something where it's almost like this energy exchange or something I can kind of, and it doesn't matter who they are or what level they're at. If they're a junior, if they're like below a junior and they have no idea, but I want to, I feel like I want to take a risk on someone when I can see that spark. It's that energy. It's, it's either charisma. It's a passion. It's something about them that you can almost see it in their eyes that they are just going to slay at this job and they just, they're going to be great. But it's not just the attitude of wanting to do great, but there's also something in them. I think when I say the word spark, it's almost like either a, like sort of like an intelligence. And I don't know if I mean, you know, book smart intelligence. I don't know if I mean emotional intelligence, but there's just something there where they're just kind of switched on. And you can kind of just sense that in people. It's almost like finding an X factor in someone in recruitment. For me, that's like a spark, um, which is so silly. But when you interview so many people, that's honestly sometimes what it comes down to, or that's what separates people. And I would also say that we have a very like zero, and I don't know if I can say this, but like dickheads policy. Um, yes. <laughs> and uh, that is uh, very important to our culture that we retain a sense of camaraderie, that there's no egos, that um, we really have just a very kind and caring environment, very warm. So anyone that kind of is coming to the table and I can just feel their genuine spirit and look, if they're, if they've got a good, good sense of humor, that's not a bad thing either. I just think if you enjoy the people that you work with, everything's just going to work so much better. You're going to want to work with them. It's not going to feel like a chore. And because a lot of people at JM, what we do, we love to do. So if you can do what you love to do with people that you love to do it with, that's a really awesome combination. When you're hiring someone for a highly creative role, so a creative director, is it as important or is it important to give them a practical uh, question or exercise to prove their worth or do you just know? Is that just a given? Yeah, I mean, look, if it's at a creative director level, I would say most designers, uh, especially on the visual side, definitely have a portfolio. And I can pretty much open a portfolio or a website and know in a split second if they've got the chops or not. Um, that just comes with experience and having a design eye. But when it comes to a creative director, and especially someone that is creatively directing for a brand from scratch, I'm not talking about someone that can just do campaigns, like there's actually a nuance between the two. That's really important. But uh, in terms of like an actual activity or anything, um, I think that's generally kind of frowned upon in the industry, um, especially when you reach a certain level, like a creative director. 
One thing that we have been uh, thinking about implementing is maybe more around case study framework, where they already have all of that work done, but we can maybe just uh, put it in a in a way that allows them to speak more to the decision making, the strategic ideas, all of that in their process. Because we could do that on the spot with them, but they might not be fully prepared. And I almost want to see what they're like a little snapshot of what they're like in a presenting mode. Um, so that's one thing that we are considering. But I would say typically it's it's really the portfolio that works hardest for a lot of creative types. And then also on top of that, how they communicate. If they're a great communicator and they have a great portfolio, then they're probably going to be a pretty uh, dangerous combination. Is there any one question that you ask when you're hiring that might give you that answer that you're looking for, i.e., that the spark can be exposed? I don't know if it's one question, but it's, I do, there are a few questions because culture is so important to us. We often do ask people a question around, and this is just me, I know we all ask different questions, but if I interviewed your closest friends and family, how would they describe you in three words? And then I would also say, you know, if you were to describe yourself in three words, what would you say? So it's actually really interesting in the way that they think about the different ways in which they would speak to their personality traits from their own personal perception to external. And I actually had one time someone said, well, actually, I think my personal perception of from my family and friends is actually completely different. And, you know, no, but part of that honestly was because he was uh, gay and a person of color. And I think that was like a really... uh, beautiful moment, actually, in that interview. And it's not an answer that I was necessarily expecting and I'd never received before. But that can be such a an insightful way to understand how they think. And, um, and, and I think their EQ as well, which is um, maybe got to do with that spark element. Alex, how would your friends and family describe you? Oh, no. <laughs> I had to ask. <laughs> God dang it. Um, I would say that they would say that I'm definitely warm and uh, creative. I mean, that's an obvious one. And um, potentially just like a little bit, a little bit silly as well. Awesome. (laughs) I would say playful maybe, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. There's the spark. Mm-hmm, yeah. You definitely get your own job. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just going to finish on a question that I know that everyone's going to want me to ask you. So uh, it's a little bit off leadership, but tell us about your affordable art project and how we can see it and how we can get involved. Oh, yes. Awesome. So it's called The Broke Collector. Uh, and basically it just started when I think it was, I read a book that was like, the poor person's guide to collecting art. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's me. But then I read it and they were like, okay, so you need $10,000 to start. And I was like, oh, come on. Uh, so as a creative, as a you know designer myself, I'm often exposed to great designers, illustrators, artists. And I was like, okay, wait, I feel like I could probably do this uh, service for myself, but then why not share it with others? So I started just curating Uh, art that I would find under $500. And I would often look under rocks and crevices and all of these places on the internet that you wouldn't think to look. And I just started curating it. And I have an Instagram. It's called The Broke Collector with an underscore at the end. So um, please do follow. And uh, there's, yeah, a lot of great art. Some some of it's prints, some of it's originals. And um, look, if you're an artist or a designer and you've got some great stuff, uh, feel free to slide into my DMs. 
Fantastic. And um, I feel like we uh, should do a whole other podcast on how to build a business from scratch and do the design and uh, the business plan uh, because that is what you are absolutely genius at. It is fantastic to talk to you though about leadership. Thank you for joining us from LA and um, I hope one day I can get LA to come and say hello. I've been promising to do that for five years and I have (laughs) never got there. (laughs) I know, I would love that. Um, But thank you so much for having me. It's been a real treat. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 